Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. Hebrews chapter 8. Our author is continuing his development of Jesus' high priesthood in heaven. And here we come to the development of the idea that with this new priesthood comes also a new covenant between God and men. A much better covenant. So, let's look at our text here and see what we see. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make uh, with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. <laughs> Jesus' death on the cross ushered in a brand new covenant between God and men. Uh, you know, we are dispensationalists and believing that God deals with human beings in different ways at different times. And uh, oftentimes, a covenant is the signal of a new dispensation. As our verses point out, the old covenant, speaking of the Mosaic law and that system uh, that the Lord gave to Israel as a nation, that old covenant was rendered obsolete because it had always been insufficient to save. The law could not save you, and the epistles point this out. Uh, instead, the law only revealed to you that you needed a Savior and that you were in, in desperate trouble uh, with, with the Lord. People who were waiting for the Savior to arrive, people who were waiting for Messiah, would attempt to obey the law because it is what God asked them to do in that old covenant. But it was always incomplete and imperfect because God himself had to come and save us by dying for our sins and then rising again. And we talked about that last time. We talked about Jesus being high priest and how God has to build a bridge from heaven to us in order to bring us salvation. Now that Jesus has done the work of salvation, now that the Messiah has arrived and has done what he needed to do to save us. There is no need for the law or the old covenant between God and an individual believer. Instead, there is something new and something greater, uh, according to our text this morning. And what we see here in our chapter is that God always intended to get human beings past that old stage of being under the law. God didn't want to leave the people of earth under 
that, that pre-Messiah law period, uh, where we are constantly having to go and receive atonement week after week or day after day, and constantly be reminded that we are in need of salvation, and constantly be reminded that there is that Messiah hasn't come yet. The Lord didn't want to leave us there. What God had intended from the beginning was to do a work so that one day we can not only forever move past our sins, but then grow in salvation. Right there in the Garden of Eden, right after Adam and Eve fell in sin, the Lord said, okay, my intention is to bring in a Messiah to repair this relationship. He didn't say my intention is to bring a set of rules and principles that you try to follow in order to earn my favor. He says, my, my intention is I'm one day going to bring the Messiah who will deal with this problem once and for all. And so his intention for us as individuals is that he wanted to do a work so that we could move past our sins and say, okay, the Lord has forgiven my sins. I'm going to walk with him in righteousness, the righteousness that he gives, and I'm going to grow in salvation rather than be in this continual loop of sin and sacrifice, sin and sacrifice. Go and get this temporary atonement from a priest or at the temple. It's exciting to pause and realize that as a Christian, there's always more depth available to me in my relationship with God. And that's what God wants. He says, you know, I want to get you, you know, past this sort of rudimentary stage of understanding you need salvation and, and following this Levitical law in order to receive atonement. You didn't receive salvation through the law. You can't be saved by the law. But you receive temporary atonement, this covering, by attempting to follow it and by... Uh, and by bringing sacrifices to the temple. But the Lord says, yeah, I want to get everybody past that so that you can grow in salvation. And as we've been seeing chapter after chapter, uh, the Holy Spirit speaking and saying, yeah, there's all this fruitfulness, there's all of these things that accompany salvation, all this growth and all this maturity that you're welcome to um, if you will follow after the Lord. And it's exciting to pause and realize that there's always more depth available to me in my relationship with God. I'm never going to hit, uh, you know, uh, the wall where where the Lord says, yeah, I don't really have anything else for you, you know. Um, I'll see you when I see you. I mean, that, that's never going to happen. As far as the Bible is concerned, I never have to get to a point where I'm not growing spiritually or growing in my nearness to the Lord. There's always more of God's love for me to experience because His love cannot be measured, height or depth or width or breadth. There's always more wisdom that the Lord wants to give me when it comes to His Word for living my daily life, the power of God's Spirit is also limitless and available to me to grow in. And so it is really exciting to pause and think about how rich we are in Christ and that we can go to His heavenly storehouse and withdraw good things from Him every day and in every situation without ever having to fear that we're going to be turned away from the Lord. You know, we're never going to be turned away from the, 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 the God of heaven. He says, no, come to me, come to me, come to me. I have more rest, I have peace, I have joy, I have wisdom, I have power, I have endurance, I have all of these things for you, and I'll never turn you away if you come and ask for them. There's never going to be a point where the Lord says, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of done with my programming in you, you know. Uh, I'm done with nearness to you, you know. You're, you're getting a little bit too close, and so let, let's just go at arms, uh, arms reach. That, that's never going to happen. And so chapter 8 lays out the fact that there's this new covenant between God and his people. I mentioned it a moment ago, but we know that this new covenant started when Christ shed his blood on the cross. We know that because that's what Jesus said. In Luke 22, verse 20, here's what Jesus said. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So when Jesus' blood was shed on the cross, a new covenant began 
between God and man. From the text, we understand that this new covenant extends from the moment of the cross all the way through our time and into the future. Because there in verse 11 of Hebrews 8, we see depicted a scene where everyone on the earth has knowledge of the Lord. Um, you know, you don't need to teach, you know, he says, you know, you're not going to need to teach people, hey, know the Lord, because everybody will know the Lord. And that certainly isn't our current time or our current situation. And so we're right in the middle of this covenant, we're not beyond it. Uh, and we're a part of the covenant as well. Uh, the new covenant brings us a new position as God's people. Before, under the old system, as we've been talking about, there was distance and separation. Uh, it's not that God wanted there to be distance, but there had to be. There had to be a distance and separation because the Lord had built that complete bridge from heaven uh, to people in the sense of sending the Messiah to uh, once and for all purge our sins. Um, but there was this, this, there was this distance. The Holy of Holies was separate from the rest of the temple. The people were separate from the priests. The priests were separated from the high priests in, in certain ways. Now under the new covenant arrangement, God's people have themselves become the temple of the Lord. And according to 1 Peter 2 verse 9, we have been then commissioned as priests ourselves. So the Lord comes and he says, okay, under the old system, you know, you had a high priest, then you had other priests who were descendants of Aaron, then you had these Levites, and then you had separation between all of those people, and then those people, and then the rest of the people. Then there was a separation between the Israelites and the Gentiles, and then there was a separation in the different you know, parts of the temple. He says, okay, that's all done. You're going to tear that veil in half. And now under this new system, you become a believer. You become one of my people, and now you're a priest, and you're a temple. There's no more separation. Uh, what that means is that we as Christians, then, are to raise up a temple in our hearts and raise up a place of worship and, and a dwelling place for the Lord in our lives. And then we're to serve as priests the way Jesus served. With those callings and goals in mind, we should do what Moses did. There in verse 5 we see it. Moses was taken by God, excuse me, he was tasked by God with setting up a place of worship and establishing ministry for the people. But he wasn't left alone or unequipped to do it. The Lord didn't give Moses the goals. He didn't come and say, hey, you need to build a tabernacle. You need to institute um, you know, this system of worship for the people. Now go do it however you want. You just, just do it. I just want you to do it. You know. Instead, the Lord said, no, come and, and peer into heaven so that you can see what's going on up here. And then I want you to copy and model the tabernacle after what you see. Um, it's really an interesting sort of revelation we get in this chapter about what the Lord did with Moses way back in the book of Exodus. He says, okay, I'm going to, we don't know how he did, we don't know if he transported him up to heaven or just gave him a vision or, or whatever he said, but I'm going to let you look into heaven for a moment. And then I want you to copy what you see and establish that place of worship and that style of ministry on the earth. In this new covenant that Jesus has ushered in, we've been put into a similar situation and a similar calling in that we're commanded by God to make our lives a temple and establish ministry to the world around us. And God looks at our lives and he says that he wants our temple and our priesthood to mimic the realities of heaven. He says, I don't want you to just go out there and, you know, do whatever you want. He says, no, I, I'm equipping you and instructing you and showing you the realities of heaven so that you can do that in your own life. Um, and we've been given a pattern in the scriptures so that we can know how to properly reflect Jesus Christ in his work in our lives. And that was one of the caveats that we see there. Moses was selected to lead the people out of Egypt by God's power. He was selected to establish a tabernacle, selected to establish ministry. But then the Lord said to him, see that you're making all things according to the pattern 
This isn't just up to you. This isn't just however you want to do it. I, I want you to follow this pattern. Uh, and here's the thing. A covenant, by definition, is a cooperative agreement between two parties. God, for his part, has done a huge amount for us in this deal that he's making. You know, he comes to the table with this pretty incredible buyout deal. He says, listen, I'm going to buy out your life so that you don't go under, so that you don't go bankrupt, so that you can live and not die. And, and, and he does way more than his fair share when it comes to a cooperative partnership. He says, I'm going to bring all this to the table. I'm going to buy out your life so that you can survive, so that you can have life. Um, but we have to remember uh, that, that we also have a part to play. A covenant is a, is a cooperative agreement between uh, two parties. Commentators point out how many times in this chapter God says, I will, I will, I'll do this, I'll do that. And as he comes and explains to us what he wants to do, he, he shows in his grace that he is determined not to pour out legalism, but instead he wants to pour out the richness of his love and his mercy and his graciousness to us. But since this is a covenant, we have to recognize that we have a load to bear in cooperation with the Lord as well. We're not passive members of this partnership. We're called to be active members of the partnership. Christianity in the Bible is never portrayed as something dormant or inactive or without cost. There's always a calling and an action required because, as the Lord says, being a Christian means that we're putting on a yoke with Jesus Christ like two oxen in a field with a job to do. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, sometimes the priests and the Levites would forget or neglect to do some of the things they agreed to do, you know, as priests and Levites. Um, you see there, after the exile in Babylon, and the people were coming back and rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple, at one point it was time to reestablish the ministry, but a bunch of the priests, they were slacking on, on cleansing themselves, and they thought, I don't I'm just... I'm not really going to do it. We don't know what really what their motivation was, but they just didn't do it. They wouldn't cleanse themselves. They wouldn't take up the load that they were to bear. And they were being rebuked, and then the Lord had to work around that. And, you know, the, they're figuring out, okay, well, let's have the Ezra's like, hey, well, okay, we're going to have to have the Levites act as priests. And even though they shouldn't have to because you should be carrying that load right now, and the Lord says, no, that's okay. You know, and they kind of massaged all that around. But there were times there in the Old Testament where, you see the priests and the Levites just neglecting to carry their share of their agreement with God. And it's a really, really sad thing. Uh, there were times when there wasn't enough physical provision being brought into the temple. The people were carrying their fair share. And so the Levites had to leave their posts to go feed their families. And they, so they would just leave. And, and, you know, the man of God would come into the temple and say, hey, where are the priests and the Levites? And it was like, yeah, well... The people refused to bring any food or any provision or anything into the temple, so the Levites were starving, so they just left, and they had to go start farming. So this text plainly says that under the Old Covenant, there were times when God's people Israel wouldn't continue with the Lord. And that led to a number of sad and serious consequences. And God says, you know what, I have this Old Covenant with you. You would not continue in that. And so you broke our partnership. Our new covenant with the Lord is much different than what we see under the Levitical law. But as we've been talking about for eight chapters now, just because we're under this wonderful, gracious new covenant doesn't mean that we don't need to continue moving forward with the Lord. Quite the contrary. Over and over again, these believers are being warned to make sure you're continuing and growing and being fruitful in the Lord. 
If we're yoked up with Christ, like two oxen get yoked up to plow field, which is the one of the analogies that Jesus himself used, and if one of those oxen wants to move forward, the other ox says, yeah, I don't want to make any progress. I don't want to do any work. I just want to stand there. But you've got a real partnership problem, you know, because that one ox isn't going to be able to just drag the other ox along because that's not how it works. So in the position we find ourselves in, we should be moving forward by doing what we've been called to do. And the two specific things that jumped out from the example of Moses and the tabernacle here in the text is that first we need to be tending our temple. We are the temple of the Lord, but that temple needs to be clean and needs to be undefiled. It needs to be free from those spiritual money changers. We need to think about whether our lives are a place of ongoing worship or if they're not. We need to think about if, if you know, that sort of continual burning lamp that we see depicted in the Old Testament is burning in our own lives. That continual uh, place of worship and that continual attention to the relationship with God. Man, is my life a, a real temple that is pure and undefiled? Sometimes, as I've already talked about, in the Old Testament, stuff would be going on, and the priests and the Levites would neglect their duties, and then worship in the temple stopped, and that's a sad thing. And I never want that to be true of my life, so I need to be moving forward in my spiritual life, making sure that I'm growing in worship, and making sure that I'm tending the temple of my heart, the temple of my life. The temple was also a place of sacrifice and offerings and giving gifts to God, and this text even highlights how the priests would give gifts and offerings. And so if I'm not personally growing in those areas of sacrifice and offering and giving gifts to the Lord, if I'm not going deeper in my giving to God, I should be. Because when God shows us his heart, and when he shows us a glimpse into heaven like he showed Moses, what, what we see is that Jesus, our high priest, gave all for us, and that he still is giving for us. He's still interceding for us. He's still serving us. And we find that he is continually giving, continually offering us help, continually going... You know, as far as we need him to go in order to reach us and help us. Now, he laid down his own life for us. And so as Christians, our goal is to mimic the realities of heaven in our own lives. And that's the second aspect of Christianity that we can think about today. Not just cultivating and raising up a temple in our lives, but also copying the pattern we've been given of our high priest, Jesus Christ. Because the Bible comes along and says, okay, now you're a believer, and now under this new system, you're a priest. You're a royal priesthood, and you're to go out and serve as a priest, and you're to mimic what your high priest does. As I look at my life, as I evaluate my heart and think about what I'm doing, I should ask myself, would Jesus Christ be doing what I'm about to do? You know, the What Would Jesus Do campaign was a, a great campaign and a great thing to think about, and it's passe now. Um, and, but sometimes I think I need to apply it to myself not as much as what would Jesus do but okay, what am I doing? Would Jesus Christ be doing that right now? And if the answer is no, then I should figure out if it's really something I should be doing at all or if it's something if there's something else that I could be doing to reflect heaven and minister to the people around me. As our chapter says, Jesus Christ has given us an excellent covenant. He's given us an excellent ministry to grow in it's full of grace and provision as God takes our lives and says, okay, go with me today and I will, I will, I will, I will do all of these things that I want to do for you and through you. I will do much. I will bring all of this to the table, but you have to come with me. You have to be in agreement. You have to be a part of this work that I'm doing. And so today, let's be sure that we're making our lives according to the pattern that we've been given, raising up a dwelling place in our hearts for the Lord. 
a temple that is fitting, and then carrying out our calling as priests in the manner and pattern of our high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right.